King Henry II of England had four legitimate sons who lived to adulthood, and three of them were crowned king. Henry the Young King, Richard, and John. This episode is about the one son who never had a coronation, Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you about my favorite medieval family, the Plantagenets. If you've been with us for a long time, you've heard the name Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany, come up now and again. He's featured in several of our episodes about King Henry II of England's family, but it occurred to me not too long ago that I'd never given Geoffrey his own episode. Terrible of me. So here we are, taking Geoffrey from the sidelines and sharing his story. I promise there's plenty of drama. Of course, I want to remind everyone that you can find a captioned version of this and every episode on footnotinghistory.com or youtube.com slash footnotinghistory. I'll also be linking to the related Plantagenet family episodes on our website in case you wanted to check those out if you haven't already heard them. And to thank you, thank you to all who have donated to our Ko-fi or our Patreon. We see you, we appreciate you, and we would not be here without you. So off we go to the 12th century which happens to be one of my favorite centuries because, yes, I have favorite centuries. In September of 1158, Geoffrey, the future Duke of Brittany, was born. His parents were King Henry II of England and Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. At this point, they had been married for about six years and King and Queen of England for roughly four. Geoffrey's lineage is pretty awesome on both sides. His father, Henry II, King of England, who famously defended the rights of Geoffrey's grandmother, Matilda. Matilda had been the rightful heir to the English throne a generation back, but it was usurped by her cousin, the recently deceased King Stephen. Henry's coronation restored the originally intended line of succession. Our Geoffrey's paternal grandfather was Geoffrey Count of Anjou and was himself the son of the King of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, our Geoffrey's maternal grandfather had been Duke of Aquitaine, and when he passed away, Geoffrey's mother, Eleanor, became Duchess in her own right. Prior to Eleanor's marriage to Henry II, the importance of her status was so appealing that King Louis VII of France decided to marry her to get his hands on it. That marriage produced two daughters, no sons, and a divorce that freed her to marry Geoffrey's father. So, not only was Geoffrey's mom now Queen of England, she had previously been the French Queen. Not too shabby. You might think this fancy blood made Geoffrey pretty important. The answer to that is yes and no. Yes, he was definitely special in the sense that he was a royal prince and a member of the most important family in the realm. The no is because, well, he wasn't the heir. He wasn't even the spare. Although his parents had only been married for six years, Geoffrey was their fifth child. The first, William, died as a toddler. But the children after that were still very much alive. The eldest surviving son, and therefore the heir to the throne, was Henry, who became known as the young king. 
After him were Matilda and Richard, then Geoffrey. In the years after Geoffrey was born, there were even more children. Two more sisters, Eleanor and Joan, and another brother, John. This made our Geoffrey the middle child in the surviving brood of seven, with two brothers in front of him in line for their father's crown. However, just because Geoffrey wasn't at the front of the line to be the next king, that didn't mean his family lacked plans for him. One aspect of the reign of King Henry II was his drive to strengthen and keep his hold on lands that were in what we would now call northwestern France. Some of these areas included Normandy, Anjou, Aquitaine, Poitou, Maine, and Touraine. If you were to look at a map of the area that I'm talking about, you would see that they largely appeared to border each other, which is great. Who doesn't want friendly neighbors? Well, to the east of this expanse was land more or less under the control of the French king, less friendly. And to the west of this expanse was, well, water in many cases, but also Brittany. Henry wanted to keep Brittany friendly, but he also wanted to control it because of historical family ties to the region. Henry was huge on restoring holdings with the ties to his family, especially ties to his grandfather, Henry I, throughout his whole reign. Brittany was under control of its own duke, Conrad IV, who Henry approved of and supported. Some use the word sponsored. However, Conan wasn't exactly killing it over there. Brittany was not a peaceful place and there were always issues. So eventually, Henry took action to secure it and succeeded. In 1166, the year our Geoffrey turned eight, Henry had him betrothed to Constance, the only child of Conan and his wife, Margaret. This meant Geoffrey's future was tied to Brittany. Plus, Conan stepped down. This made Constance, who was still a child, not only engaged, but also guaranteed to be Brittany's new duchess. It also meant that even if Conan and Margaret had sons later on, they had no claim. The situation was already settled. Conan kept a small bit of land to control for himself, and the rest was solidified. As such, Constance and her inheritance all went right to Henry II, who could, and would, control it until he decided it was time to hand it over to Geoffrey. While Geoffrey waited to be deemed old enough to take a bride and Brittany for himself, he was involved in establishing the hierarchy of control of Brittany. At the tail end of the 1160s, an agreement was reached between King Henry II of England and King Louis VII of France that involved Geoffrey a bit. The warring monarchs both, quite frankly, wanted control of that big chunk of land we're discussing. Ultimately, Henry controlling it was something Louis didn't like. As historian W.L. Warren described it, Louis feared the emasculation of the French monarchy by the creation of an overpowerful Angevin empire. Meaning, Henry II had too much power, too close to him. So Henry said, hold on, I'm not keeping all this for myself. It's going to get split up among three of my sons. Henry the Young King would get Normandy and Anjou, etc. Richard would get Aquitaine. And Geoffrey would get Brittany. With that sounding you know, a bit better, the three brothers then had to acknowledge that the real overlord of the area was the French king, and that he was allowing, big air quotes there, them to hold their titles and govern their respective areas. This was done through an act called homage. Richard and the young king did homage to Louis for their lands, 
and Geoffrey did homage to the young king, thus recognizing that his hierarchy for Brittany was really himself on the ground, below his brother, who was below the French king. Yes, I, I know, it's, it's messy, but medieval vassal relationships almost always are. It's also interesting. It means that Geoffrey, Henry the young king, and Richard all now had ties not just to their own father, but also to one of his greatest rivals and their mom's ex-husband, the French king. These dueling ties were important. Not long after all of this was settled, chaos erupted in the family when Geoffrey's eldest brother, Henry the young king, went into open rebellion against their father in the early 1170s. By now, the young king had married. His wife was none other than the French king's daughter, and he'd had a coronation. So there were two official kings, but the father had all the power and the son was left sitting on his hands. He got really tired of it. I cover this rebellion in detail in my first A Royal Son episode about the young king that was released a few years ago, and I have linked it in the post for this episode. Both Geoffrey and Richard rallied to the young king with their support, while their mother was all for it. Geoffrey impressed people with his prowess as a fighter, a speaker, and someone capable of deception. It took a great deal of time for things to calm down. In addition to Henry II having to make peace with his sons, Louis VII, who had encouraged and aided the rebellion, was also involved in peace negotiations. There were a lot of moving pieces and the political game dragged for a while, but when all was said and done, amends were made between Henry II and all of his errant sons, though his relationship with Eleanor was a disaster moving forward. For Geoffrey, the solution reached in fall of 1174 was that even though he wasn't married yet, he was granted half of the revenue of Brittany. It may not be full power or everything, but it also wasn't a punishment, and he got back into his father's good graces. The next few years were relatively peaceful, and Geoffrey bounced all over from Brittany to England to Normandy. He helped quell upset lords in Brittany, learned government by watching his father handle some scenarios in need of his intercession, was knighted by his father, and participated in tournaments. In 1179, he attended the coronation of the future new French king, Philip Augustus. Although Louis VII was still alive, but wouldn't be for long, he had his son crowned, just as Henry the Young King was crowned while Henry II was very much alive. This was viewed as a way to strengthen the heir's hold on the crown and prevent dissension when the old king passed. For Geoffrey, it was an opportunity to get to know Philip and do homage for him directly for Brittany. They became buddies, much to the chagrin of Henry II, who was never in favor of being too close with the French rulers. He wasn't wrong to be wary either. The French kings often enjoyed contributing to the chaos in Henry's family. In 1181, Geoffrey finally hit the big time. After all those years of waiting to grow up, he got to marry Constance. Huzzah! This also meant that he got upgraded. That's right, dear listeners. Geoffrey and Constance got actual, hands-on, control of Brittany. Geoffrey was no doubt beyond excited. He was a smart man. He recognized that he held Brittany because of his wife Constance. And because of that, they appeared to have functioned like a team. They were together regularly, she was involved in governing Brittany with him, and they ultimately had multiple children together, who we will discuss in a few minutes. Geoffrey also knew that he needed to keep the Breton leaders happy. In part, 
He did this by filling both open administration roles and his court with locals. If you think this means that now everything was finally peachy, you are mistaken, because this is the family of Henry II. Someone was always upset with someone else. The early 1180s saw Geoffrey celebrating Christmas with the king and their family, but it also saw him get involved in the second armed family hostilities in like a decade. And as usual, the sources are confusing when it comes to all of the details, though the basics have been pieced together. We know Henry the Young King had still been chafing about his father's failure to give him any real authority. He was also sort of at odds with Richard. Richard hadn't been doing so great in Aquitaine, and Henry the Young King played on that, letting people know that he might be the better option. Henry II decided to put an end to this by having Richard and Geoffrey do homage, just like we talked about earlier, to the young king for their respective lands. Perhaps this would calm everything down and reaffirm the change of command and who had power where. Geoffrey did his part. Richard refused to do his, and Henry balked in return. This caused a blow-up. Instead of helping things get better, like his father wanted him to do, Geoffrey brought his troops into direct conflict with Richard. The young king, who likely knew Geoffrey was going to do that, joined him and was glad for his support. It was a very bloody time. Henry II got involved militarily in order to protect Richard, who he thought might lose his life with the way things were escalating from the young king and Geoffrey. Attempts at peace failed, while people died, and the region was plundered, including by Geoffrey, according to record. This all came to a screeching halt, though, in June of 1183, when Henry the Young King, still alienated from his father, passed away suddenly at the age of 28. With no young king needing support in his rebellion anymore, Geoffrey was eventually brought back under control and into the family fold. It didn't, however, mean that he and Richard became buddies. In 1184, Geoffrey and his youngest brother John teamed up against Richard in yet another conflict, this time a turf war, where yet again, Henry II had to drag them all in by the ear, not literally, and force them to get along, or at least stop fighting with each other. Henry II, at this point, trusted Geoffrey enough to let him take part in governing Normandy, but relations between Geoffrey and Richard remained rocky. They had battle conflict again in 1185, this time squabbling over Anjou, because of course, again, there's always something to fight about. By the following year, Geoffrey decided it was time to start talking to his old buddy Philip Augustus, who was sole king by now, and Philip appears to have welcomed it. They continued to get on, even if Geoffrey and Richard didn't, and it's always a good idea to have a king as an ally, especially if you're hoping for support from him in claiming lands hitherto intended for your dead brother, Henry the Young King. Unfortunately, though, we don't know what would have happened next if whatever Geoffrey was planning came to fruition because in August of 1186, he passed away. The date often cited for his death is actually August 19th, which happens to be today. I didn't plan to release this on his possible death anniversary, but maybe there was some sort of divine inspiration that led me to choose him to talk about at this moment. You never know. What exactly caused Jeffrey's death has always been a bit of a debate, though we know it occurred in Paris. The two main contenders for what caused his death are an unnamed illness or 
the more dramatic but not necessarily more likely proposal that he was injured or trampled while participating in a tournament. Either way, that summer, his life ended when he was just shy of his 28th birthday. Jeffrey was interred not, as you might have thought, in either England or Brittany, but in that world-famous cathedral in Paris, Notre Dame, though this was still very early in the cathedral's life, and people who saw it then wouldn't recognize it if they saw it now. Jeffrey left behind his widow, Constance, who would eventually remarry twice, as well as two daughters, Matilda and Eleanor. But Constance was also pregnant at the time of her husband's death. Some months after Jeffrey passed, she gave birth to their son, Arthur. Arthur eventually became not only Duke of Brittany, but due to his paternal lineage, also something even more important. In 1189, Henry II died and the crown was passed to Geoffrey's elder brother, Richard I, aka Lionheart. During Richard's reign, he did recognize Arthur as his heir in the event that he, that is Richard, didn't have children of his own. This didn't sit well with Richard's last remaining brother, John, who was, of course, also Arthur's uncle. This resulted in a complex competition between adult John and still young Arthur that increased epically following Richard's death in 1199. John took the crown and fighting ensued. Eventually, in 1202, a defiant Arthur who knew full well his claim to the throne was captured and taken into John's custody. The common belief is that Arthur died in 1203. Exactly how is an unconfirmable mystery not too different from the question that arose two centuries later when people wondered what happened to the sons of Edward IV in the care of their uncle Richard III. In this case, some stories have come down to us that include that Arthur might have been kept in squalid conditions and that at one point, although it was ultimately prevented, John wanted to have his nephew blinded and castrated to prevent him from being an appealing alternative option for King. A theme that occurs in the stories of Arthur's death is that it was related to John. One story claims that John was in Rouen and in a frenzy, possibly drunk, he killed Arthur with his own two hands before throwing his body into the Seine, from which it was later found and secretly interred in a priory. Another story says that Arthur drowned, and I wish I could tell you exactly what went down, but unfortunately, all I can do is tell you that it didn't end well for Geoffrey's son Arthur and Geoffrey's own brother was probably the one who caused his death. As for Geoffrey and Constance's daughters, one, Matilda, died in childhood. The other, Eleanor, lived until the 1240s when she was in her 50s. Due to her lineage, potential claims, and the possibility that she could marry someone who tried to act on those claims, she was taken prisoner by the crown. First, she was under John's control, and then when he died in 1216, Custody of her was basically passed to the new king, John's son and her cousin, King Henry III. She may have lived in comfort physically, but she was a captive for the majority of her life and not allowed to do anything that a regular woman of her time would have. Ultimately, Geoffrey's lasting legacy has been as a major footnote in the history of the family of King Henry II, who was always involved in the troublemaking. As far as his personality and general character are concerned, his reputation is such that he is almost always described as duplicitous and conniving. These interpretations come largely from two well-known medieval chroniclers, Roger of Howden and Gerald of Wales. Roger famously called Geoffrey a son of perdition and son of iniquity, while Gerald of Wales said that he was 
overflowing with words, soft as oil, possessed by his syrupy and persuasive eloquence, of the power of dissolving the seeming indissoluble, able to corrupt two kingdoms with his tongue, of tireless endeavor, a hypocrite in everything, a deceiver and a dissembler. Those are some strong words. Yet, as with everything in history, it's more complicated than that. In her book about the Angevins in Brittany, J.A. Everard discusses these characterizations, but argues that they need context and do not provide a full picture. First, she points out that Brittany didn't have a chronicle for this period, so we lack a source from the area where Geoffrey was in charge. Also, she states that Roger's son of perdition comments applies to the period when Geoffrey was in rebellion, which was naturally going to be seen as bad, and that Roger does not criticize Geoffrey openly anywhere else in his writing. She further points out that Geoffrey was seen as eloquent, smart, a patron of poetry, in possession of large military skill. We don't have anything really from him that would tell us how he thought or felt or what his true reasons for doing things were. As such, while I'd never go so far as saying we should throw out the descriptions we have and consider him an angel, like that would be ridiculous, it is always important to think about the context in which opinions and descriptions were given and to recognize that Jeffrey likely had more nuance to his character than is often claimed. Nevertheless, when you come across Jeffrey in pop culture, the duplicitous, angry, disloyal son is usually how he is depicted. So, dear listeners, tell me, what do you think? How happy would Jeffrey be that we are talking about him all these years later? Can we say, given how he was constantly framed as a secondary actor in the sources, that we really know anything about him as a person at all? Let me know in the comments or on our website or YouTube or through one of our social media channels. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed Jeffrey's life story as much as I do. And until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.